1: Hey, it's Dan here. You are listening to a bonus episode of On The Tape. Today, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dan Benton, one of the top technology investors in the game over the last few decades. Dan currently manages Benton Capital Management, a private family office. Before that, he was the CEO of Andor Capital from 2001 until 2016. He has a very, very storied career covering tech on the sell side. Prior to that, uh, we thought it was pressing given all the big tech earnings we're going to get this week. So take a listen. And if you enjoy it, don't forget to leave us a review. Dan Benton, welcome to On the Tape.
2: Dan Nathan, thanks for having me. All
1: right, really quickly for our listeners Dan and I met in November of 2016. We had not met through our kids yet, as most people do in this fine city of New York City. But we were at a dinner that Kara Swisher held. Do you remember this? For Recode, it was the week after the election. And everyone, at least in that room, was a little glazy-eyed, still a little shell-shocked, if you, if you will. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember seeing you and seeing your name tag. And I had to go up. And I had to introduce myself to you because growing up in the business when, in the late 90s, I was very well aware you were at Dawson Sandberg. Is that correct? Yeah. Pequot. Um, these were like storied hedge funds at a time where hedge funds were pretty new business. Is that correct? It was a new business. Yeah, it
2: absolutely, was new business. I mean, this is the era of you know Steinhardt and Tiger.
1: Yeah. And it's funny, you know. I told this story on one of the podcasts, I can't even keep track anymore. When I started at SAC Capital in 1997, I remember it was the five-year anniversary party that summer and Steve kind of made his way up to a podium and he said, we just crossed $650 million under management. It was like a huge number back in the day. And I think a lot of investors were not really used to this whole long, short mantra, if you will, in the markets. Is that something that made you gravitate towards the hedge fund business at the time? because you had the ability to kind of obviously buy, which everybody does, but also take the other side of that in short stocks.
2: You know, absolutely. When I think back to early stages in my career, my very first thing I did at Goldman in the mid-1980s was to tell people to sell IBM and buy Compaq. No way. Uh, And I made a career out of telling people to sell IBM and
1: buy the next generation thing. So Compaq was like an upstart. It was like a kind of a – PC company at
2: the time. And then then Dell did it to Compaq. But tech historically has been about – creative destruction. It's been about the next generation company hurting the last guy. And so it lent itself to a natural hedge. When we were running the fund back in the 90s and even all the way through, frankly, I didn't hedge. I shorted to make money. We were long short. That's what we were. If I didn't have good short ideas, I didn't short them. The idea was you could own this company and that company would get hurt and vice versa. And that's always been my philosophy.
1: Did you always think it was the same skill set as kind of identifying a long would also be identifying a short? Or was it really, oh, we think this company is going to be a winner in this category, in this sector, and there's obviously going to be losers. And therefore, if we're going to profit off the one that's winning, why not try to profit off the one that might lose?
2: That's a subtle question Uh, because, yes, clearly you had market share gainers within a theme and you had themes that clobbered established companies. Take a step back. Yeah. The 60s were the decade of the mainframe. The 70s was the decade of the mini computer. The 80s was the decade of the PC. The 90s was the decade of Internet 1.0 and internet infrastructure being built out. 2000s was, I guess, arguably the mobile phone. 2010s? What could it have been, right? It was, it was mobile, the, social, broadband. I mean, it was the era of the iPhone. It was the era of the iPhone. And what did the iPhone allow? When we got narrower, when we try to dissect these things, I think we're missing it. I think we got to step back and say, what was the dominant theme of the decade? And when you try to get too cute about, you know, well, this little guy's doing this. Let's take a step back, yeah. right? What did you need to own in the last 10 years? You needed to own FANG, right? That's what you need to own. FANG and Tesla. That's all you needed to own. Shorten stuff, yeah, maybe it helped.
1: Maybe it didn't help. Here's the good news. Most people who own the major indices own a lot of FANG. You know, when you think about it, I call it the MAGA complex, Microsoft, Apple, Google, and Amazon. We're going to talk about that. And, you know, last year, I think I threw the F in front of it for Facebook. I called it F MAGA. You can see what I did there. No one thinks I'm particularly bright Funny, but let's take a step back, all right? Because you were on the sell side, you were at Goldman Sachs in the mid 80s, and Goldman Sachs did something in the mid 80s that put them on the Mac, it made them a made guy, if you will. You guys took Microsoft public, okay? What, 1986 was it? Seven,
2: I think. 86 or 87, yeah.
1: So, since then, I mean, you literally have been kind of the go-to house, not you anymore, but you know, they have been the go-to house. Did you guys recognize at the time you and Rick Sherlin, I mean, Rick was covering the name and he was also kind of serving as banker too. And I'm sure your whole research department was serving as quasi-bankers too. Did you guys recognize what was happening at the time? And you said you had covered mainframes into PCs and really what Microsoft software was going to do for the PC revolution.
2: Two things I can't let you get away with there. Number one, I love the you guys at Goldman thing. Goldman considers people who left them- Yeah, dead uh, to them. No, not at all. They think of us al- as alumni. Oh, okay. Okay, I graduated from business school. I graduated from undergraduate school. I didn't graduate from Goldman. They underpaid me and I left. I know, that's that what happened? The second thing is that when I look at the role of a sell-side analyst, and it has clearly changed in the last 40 years, I kind of viewed it as uh, I knew a lot about my companies. I talked to my traders all the time about how stuff was trading, salespeople. I talked to portfolio managers and analysts on the buy side. What I didn't really like doing was talking to bankers. And that's, frankly, one of the reasons. And back then, there was no Chinese wall, really, for all intents and purposes. There was definitely a Chinese wall but that wasn't the fun part of the job. The fun part of the job was trying to figure out what made stocks go up and down and ultimately, frankly, go and pay me pretty well. Ultimately, (laughs) frankly, that's why I went to the hedge fund businesses because I want to make money investing in stocks, not just simply talking.
1: You probably realize something fairly quickly that most analysts are in those seats because they're risk adverse. They like doing the analysis. They like the industry. They like figuring out stories and they love the idea of working with traders, whether it be at their own shop or PMs or traders on the buy side and articulating. Those views, most of them do not like having the risk on themselves. Like, for all intents now listen, there's obviously career risk. You make enough bad calls on the sell side, you're gone, right? It doesn't seem to matter now, but yeah. Guess, no, it uh, doesn't. I mean, but back then there were far fewer analysts, I think, covering a lot of these names. And then if you help people make money and you've helped the right people make money through your analysis, you had a job on the buy side. Is that correct? I think that's right. Yeah. And so there's a huge brain drain. But before you left, Goldman for your storied career on the buy side, you came up with this thing. I got to tell you, it was shared with me. This was before email. And it's really funny, people. We're going to put it in the show notes here. It was Patrick O'Shaughnessy tweeted this out. And I think you responded to him maybe a year ago. And you and I had already talked about this. I think I wrote a blog post on it maybe shortly after we met in 2016. You wrote the 20 rules for tech stock investing. You did it at Goldman. You put it out there. And this was something that was widely shared. I mean, literally, if you were a trader on any trading desk on a tech stock, you had to look at this thing. If you're an analyst, you had to look at it. If you're a new PM, you had to look at it. And so it was shared before email. And there was really a lot of crappy copies. So when you look at the copy that we're going to share, it looks like it's been around for a long time. Do you have any of the actual copies and talk to us about writing it and what it meant to a lot of your clients and then ultimately what it meant for you. And we're going to go through some of the main ones that you live by. What did it mean for you as an investor also?
2: It's pretty funny and it has lived on all these years. And frankly, there's certain elements that are still relevant. How many years later, I think... First of all, before I came on today, I went to look to see if I had a copy of it, and I don't. I had to find the tweet that Patrick sent, and it's in there. And yeah, it's an old piece of Goldman Sachs research letterhead from the, probably like 91 or 92. The genesis was kind of what we were talking about before. What I cared about as a sell analyst was what made stocks go up and down. And it was pretty frustrating early in my career dealing with, I'm here, I was this young kid at a business school. Goldman hadn't had a mainframe analyst in quite some time. And here I am picking up IBM and saying sell. That was not a terribly popular opinion now. From your bankers? Definitely not. Definitely not from the bankers and obviously not the company. But frankly, here's this 25-year-old kid telling these pension funds that they should be selling their IBM. They didn't love that. But what it did was – Over the years, I kind of developed this framework of what works and what doesn't work. And the simplest driver of technology stocks is positive and negative earnings surprise. No real shock. It's a big driver to the industry, to the investing industry. I mean, not just tech stocks. But the thing we have in tech, we have product cycles. We've got secular trends. You get a company with a brand new product cycle that's gaining a lot of market share. In a secular trend, you got a big growth story. And when that happens, people tend to underestimate how good it's going to be and the stocks work.
1: And for how long, I think is the other thing, right? How long it might be able to last. And so talk to me a little bit about that because again, just so you know, the number one rule is sell technology stocks when estimates are being reduced. The number 20 rule, you bookend it, Don't forget rule number one.
2: And you can tell when I wrote this because I rewrote this list many times. So clearly when I wrote it, it was 91 and 92 and the market was going down.
1: Oh, yeah, because the bias as far as sell one being reduced. Okay, fair enough. I find it fascinating because I could take out five or six of these that I think will be relevant no matter what cycle in, no matter what industry. You could apply it now to other industries. And when you think about how tech is finding its way into so many other industries, it's going to be more and more momentum driven. And we're starting to see that a little bit. So I'm curious, are there any that you still live by? So for instance, the thing about estimates I think is really interesting. So on September 1st of 2021, Facebook, now Meta was a trillion-dollar market cap company for the first time ever. And we know that Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon had already done it. We know that Tesla was really on its way to doing it. We know that NVIDIA was on its kind of path to doing it at a multiple that was crazy. Now, even at the time, Facebook, even if you were going to discount those estimates, okay, so this is going back to September just a bit, still kind of a cheap stock for all intents and purposes – Nobody, not a single analyst who covered the stock, no investors, and I'm sure some investors who had big gains were selling, no one could have foreseen a couple really negative revisions over the next two quarters and the stock being cut in half. I'm just curious, now that you have a little time, you don't have to answer to investors and this, that, whatever. You run a family office. When you see that sort of price action in a market, I'm just curious like what you think about because, again, estimates were not going down. If anything, analysts were getting more positive, but it was about to be on the precipice of being cut in half.
2: Valuation is really interesting in tech. And one of the rules, which I would amend today, but one of those rules is that value investors don't make money in technology. Don't buy on P.E., don't buy in price to book, don't buy in price to sales. Buy simply on positive earnings surprise. The corollary to that is when they miss, there's no valuation underpinning. And that's what happens to growth stocks when they go X growth when they miss. And you've obviously just seen it with Netflix last week. When a company is predicated on consistent earnings beats, revenue beats, margin expansion, and they disappoint,
1: there's an air pocket under that stock. Are you shocked? Netflix is down 70%. Since January from its all time highs and it was breaking out and the story was amazing. And oh no, there was no pull forward in the pandemic, right? And there's some people who really figure this out, but the stock's gone from 10 times sales with, I think, a market cap that was maybe close to 250 billion to about three times sales. And so you're saying, listen, I'm not asking to make a call on the stock, but what you're saying is it just doesn't fit a narrative that you've been trading tech for 30 years where you're all of a sudden see value in that story.
2: So tech companies, products have cycles. Tech companies have cycles. Netflix, when they first came out, if you remember way back when, they were mailing DVDs. But the name wasn't MailFlix. The name of the company was Netflix. They saw a day when they were going to be streaming. They didn't expect to make content. They expected, if you know, remember, they did the Epics deal. They thought they would be an online, real-time version of movies after the release. So somehow or other, this company went from mailing DVDs to streaming stuff that was already out there to doing their own content. The company kept reinventing itself. It's a very, very impressive company. They've done amazing things, and they've created the streaming business. But here we are, 20-something years later, here we are with them with 200-and-something million, 300 million subscribers, I don't even know the number anymore. Trees don't grow to the sky. They penetrated the market. And clearly, the stock was trading as if they were going to continue to grow at some unsustainable rate in a mature
1: market. So one of the other... Is this a non-written rule for you is you probably identified Reed Hastings as one heck of an operator and a guy, like you said, to be able to reinvent himself, to not really care a whole heck of a lot of what investors or analysts have to say and just pushing forward with his vision. And you mentioned the content thing, which is really interesting because that was a pillar of the bear case for years, how much money they were spending to do that. And then it was a pillar of the bull case. And then it became a pillar again of the bear case on the way down because of the competition Because of the sorts of competition, it attracted Apple, Amazon, Hulu, I mean, Disney, the list goes on and on and on. And so sooner or later, all the bulls, though, couldn't see it, man. They couldn't see why all of those well-financed organizations that have an interest in competing in this area that read – why that might be a problem. And so I guess I want to segue to a name that might be near and dear. It's certainly a controversial one, but a lot of what we just talked about with Facebook and Netflix, I think could apply to Tesla. And I know that you've been a longtime bull shareholder and you saw things about Elon Musk when I first met you, you were kind of schooling me on some of this stuff. And I remember having a dinner with you in the West Village, where I think we spent at least one and a half martinis, you telling me why I'm wrong about what he's trying to do as it relates to Tesla. And I got to tell you, back then, Tesla was not a stock that was working. If anything, there was a lot of headwinds. And Elon was kind of his own problem a little bit. So my question to you is this. The stock's a trillion dollar market cap, trades at 20 times sales. They just put up an amazing quarter. Margins, right? The unit growth, what they're doing relative to their competition, how they're dealing with supply chain issues that all of their competitors are dealing with, and they're doing it really well. My question for you right now is Are they literally on the precipice, potentially, of what Facebook just dealt with, what Netflix just dealt with? Because we know the competition is coming. How do they do in a recessionary environment? How do they do with a deglobalized sort of supply chain and all this sort of... So I'm just curious your thoughts there. I don't really have an ax to grind. I got no position in the name. I just find it interesting because in every single mania that I have seen in the markets over the last 25 years, they all correct and they usually overcorrect. And then you throw in a personality like Elon and I say, that only is going to make it worse on the downside. It's clearly helping on the upside right now.
2: What market share does... Tesla has. Low single digits of the global auto share. Like one. What market share does Facebook have in whatever market you think Yeah, very high. What market share does Netflix have whatever? Okay, so we're early, early, early days. The idea of a Tesla killer. I got to tell you how many times I heard about the compact killer and the Apple Killer, and the Amazon Killer, and the Empire Strikes Back thing. It was a really, really good movie. It's a
1: terrible business strategy. Arguably thought to be the best Star Wars movie. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Okay, fair enough. We're on the same page there. Fully on board there. Tech disruption comes from
2: the next generation. I really, I was racking my brain on the way down here of how many examples we have of established companies hurting an upstart tech company. And the only two that I could come up with, and I'm sure there's more, the only two I could come up with were Microsoft hurt Lotus way back when, when they came out with Excel and Microsoft hurt Netscape when they came out with Internet Explorer. I don't have too many after that. I have the PC industry hurting the mainframe industry. I have the smartphone industry hurting the conventional PC industry. I've got obviously electronic companies killing the camera industry. I don't see it from within the industry. So the Tesla competition has to come from one of two places. It has to come from new companies or the existing companies. And it's kind of like what you just said about Netflix, right? You didn't name Disney, Peacock, and Hulu as Netflix competition long term in terms of who could spend the most amount of money. You did. You mentioned Apple and you mentioned Amazon. These are new companies that have a different business model and can afford to compete against Netflix with a very different economic outlook than Disney worrying about hurting their ESPN business. So if I look at the car industry and I look at the established players and I roll the clock back to when you and I had dinner back in 2016, look, at the time, electric cars weren't going to work. No one wants one. Electric cars catch fire. No one's going to want one. Oh, he can't build them. Oh, he can't sell them. Oh, he's got component shortages. Oh, he can't service them. Oh, self-driving doesn't work. Meantime, we've got a company growing at 50% a year. We've got a segment that I don't think is controversial anymore. Does anybody out there think that electric cars aren't the thing? That by 2030, they're going to be a substantially greater percentage of market than they are now. By 2040, they're probably the whole thing. 100 million unit industry does the ship in a million units last year, right? million five this year. There's a lot of headroom. You saw their quarter. What were their gross margins? 30%. What were their operating margins? 18-ish? Yeah. Who's higher than that? In the auto business? Yeah. Nobody. Okay. So if you flip that around, who's the low-cost producer in the auto business? Well, if you're saying on the low end of the EV space, is that what you mean? No, I mean just in general. I mean, they've got the highest margin. So one could argue, I mean, is transportation a commodity long-term?
1: I guess the question that I have is if you're saying that they're 1% or 2% of the global auto market share, and we know that there are dozens of companies that make up the rest, the other 97 or so, they might take share, but they're not going to take over because the whole automotive in 20 years is going to be EVs, right, for the most part. So I get all of that. When the
2: iPhone came out,
1: the iPhone was an
2: iPod with a chip that let you make phone calls. There wasn't even an app store. Now it's this device that kind of runs your life. And over time, that played out. We don't remember. It's hard to, hard to look back and remember that it wasn't that long ago. People probably got their first iPhone probably around 2011 because that's when it was 3G and was available outside of just simply uh, at and Yeah, they were exclusive yeah, with ATT. I know what a Tesla looks like today. I know what the competition looks like today. Tesla's got a lead. They're the only ones who can build them. I think the danger is to say, well, in three years, the companies, all these other companies will have this. Yeah, but Tesla's not going to just sit there and do nothing. In three years, Tesla will be something different, too. Have you seen the Porsche fully electric take in? Yeah. It goes 200 miles, not 400 miles. Where are you going to plug it in? It's $180,000. And
1: I will tell you this. I do think that one of the biggest opportunities in the EV space is really the build out of the infrastructure because I bought a Ford Mustang fully electric EV last March and I turned it in in November and literally took a bath on it because the infrastructure is just not there. And so right now they have a huge lead from that standpoint. If you were EV curious and you want to get in there and do it, But my question to you is this. If Tesla right now with 1% market share has a $1 trillion market cap and Ford and GM, which obviously have somewhere in the teens combined as far as market share, okay, have 10% of the market cap is Tesla. What is the the addressable market cap of this space as it transitions – to EVs. It's not a multiple of where it is right now. Well, it may be a multiple. If they go from 1% to 20,
2: does the market cap go from 1 trillion to 20 trillion? I don't think so. Yeah. Does the energy business turn into something? Does self-driving turn into something? Yeah. Do they, there's a reason why they've got such high margins. The reason why they've got such high margins, they charge $12,000 for software. They charge you $12,000 for something that doesn't cost them an incremental penny full self-driving.
1: Maybe one day it'll work, yeah. How much key man risk do you think there is with Elon? Because he's obviously the poster child for this story. And you and I, before we started recording, you said, look at all the things that he's been able to push along. Whether he invented Tesla doesn't really matter, right? Out of sheer will, he's basically pushed the entire global auto market towards this thing that he believed in some 15 years ago or maybe even before. And then what he's been able to do with SpaceX is like send rockets to of space and land them back and reuse them. It's pretty amazing. Now, I would make the argument, and I have made the argument, we're going in this direction anyway. There are other geniuses on this planet, maybe some at NASA or some at GM or some somewhere who might have been able to do this. But him and his personality, he's been able to push this along. So I'm curious, If Elon, and knock on wood, not wishing anything on it, if it wasn't here tomorrow, what happens to Tesla? Because from what we hear is that they've had a rotating cast in the C-suite for almost ever. And maybe a better manager comes in and maybe it runs more efficiently. Who knows? I'm just curious your thoughts there. And if you have some knowledge, what, what do people, naysayers about him, what do they not get about him?
2: So who created more value at Apple? Tim Cook or Steve Jobs? Tim Cook by a factor of what? And you can name lots of people like that, right? I mean, Microsoft, right? I thought you Microsoft, Adobe, PayPal. I mean, there's a lot of examples of the second generation of manager really taking the company to a whole new level. There was a time a couple of years ago when I thought the stock would get crushed if Elon left the company and it would be a spectacular buying opportunity because I frankly do not think that micromanaging the company is something that's in its best interest. Look, the stock's up 15x or something in the last year and a half or two and a half years. So there's clearly a huge Elon Musk halo effect here. I don't know what happens to the stock near term. Well, I do know. Near term without Elon the stock is crushed. Longer term, are they a better company without him? They might be. Elon's a complicated person. It's funny in the last whatever number of years, five or six years, we've been asked to be psychoanalysts of Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, and now Elon Musk with a side gig as being virologists to figure out when COVID was going to end. I can't claim to have any great insight into Elon's psyche that other people don't. He's obviously a very complicated man. He's a very smart man. He's a very driven man. He's doing things that people haven't tried before and it's working. I think if you look back, Peter Thiel came out and said something a couple of years ago. You promised us flying cars and all you gave us was 144 characters, right? Which ironically (laughs) is Twitter, isn't it? I think if you go back and you read sci-fi and whatever, we have In the last 20 years or 30 years or 40 years in sci-fi, we have overestimated atoms and underestimated bits. We've had this amazing transformation in terms of how information can travel and how cheap it is and how social networks and search and artificial intelligence have changed everything. But we also thought we'd have flying cars and we thought we would have the Star Trek transporter room, right? We thought we would have space travel. We thought that atoms, we'd have better progress than atoms. And to his credit, in the last 15 years, the only person who has really said, screw it, I'm doing atoms, is Elon. Cars, one of the most capital intensive industries in the world, rockets, probably more capital intensive than cars. And- He's changed
1: how people think. He's changed what people are willing to try. Got to give him credit for that. No doubt about it. It kind of leads me to this next thought. I would say that this is probably coming to a theater near you. He's done his job in the automotive scene. He could drop the mic at any moment and say, Hey, listen, I got this thing over here. It's called SpaceX. And the TAM there is infinite. Okay. Like if you really think about it, it's a hundred billion dollar private company here. Why might he not just become chairman of Tesla and then go and just really ramp it and do the same 10-year thing that he did over the last 10 years at Tesla with SpaceX? And maybe that's a soft landing for that transition story.
2: Ironically, he's not the chairman of Tesla. The single best thing that the SEC has ever done for Tesla shareholders was make him take that time out. That
1: $20 million fine All right, but he's about to dunk on the SEC, okay? So as a Tesla shareholder, we spent a lot of time talking about this, my podcast universe and CNBC and all this stuff, and I'm kind of sick of it. But we're on the precipice of him buying the company for $44 billion. Who knows what's going to happen as far as who manages it and this and that? He seems like he really does want to be involved. So one question I have for you is that it sounds like he's got to pledge at least half of his Tesla shares, okay? I saw an analysis and... I saw it on Twitter. Has to be true. It's a thread from Robert Frank. He's the wealth reporter at CNBC. must be true. No, he's a good reporter. And I, I would be very shocked if he tweeted this without full knowledge of it. But he's entirely, I guess, all of the pledges against his Tesla holdings, it's a disproportionate. It's at least 50%. We'll get the numbers. Okay. If that's the case, we know that he's had margin calls in the past. There's no guarantee that the stock keeps going higher. If anything, what the market has told us of late that trillion-dollar stocks can get cut in half. So it's actually Tesla shareholders could be disadvantaged if there's a margin call because the stock goes lower and then it's forced lower and lower. You saw what happened when he said, "I'm going to sell 15 billion dollars for the stock to pay taxes last year." Stock came in 20 percent. So why shouldn't Tesla shareholders own Twitter? Why shouldn't they do it with Tesla? Because they have a lot of the downside risk potentially if the stock were to come in. Does that make sense?
2: It just goes back to what we said before about decade-long themes. This is a decade-long theme. If you sold Tesla when Elon said, I'm going to sell some of my stock, the stock was higher again on January 2nd. Now, it's obviously been a choppy market since then. Stock's about 1,000, so it's a little bit lower. Go back and look at the Tesla stock chart and tell me when they had the... Th- three car fires within
1: six weeks. Yeah, but you know, and no, you people dismiss it. that. You know what I mean? Well, like, at the that, time they didn't. I know, but so here, all right, here's the tweet. Okay. So this is from Robert Frank. Okay. He said threat, how leverage uh, will Elon must be after Twitter deal? Most media reports are adding 88 million Tesla shares. He already has pledged for loans with the 61 million shares. He will pledge for the 12 and a half, Billion Twitter loan, 149 million totals. That would mean 84 percent of his shares are pledged. But the loans are based on the value, not the number of shares. If he pledged 88 million in 2019, when Tesla was fifty dollars, their value is four and a half billion or so. He would have been able to borrow one billion at the time. Those shares are now worth 88 billion. So he has room to borrow another 20 billion against the 88 million. I know that was a lot of math. No one said there was going to be any math here. But my main point here is that whatever that math shakes out, he's pledged a shit ton of his Tesla stock for prior things. And now this thing, which nobody thinks is important to the Tesla story or the SpaceX story, but he's really levered. And so my point is, as a Tesla shareholder, do you find it to be a distraction? And why should you not share if this fifty-four? dollar price has the potential to 10x over the next 10 years because elon's involved if you're sharing a bunch of the risk to the downside what opportunity do i have in boring or in Neuralink or in spacex for that
2: matter you're absolutely correct i remember when tesla bought solar city and solar city was pretty controversial tesla stock went down and why is he doing this and you know what It was a referendum. You had a choice. You could either keep your Tesla or not. And I think that it's a
1: referendum. If you don't like what he's doing, sell your Tesla. That's an amazing point. And I think that as somebody who goes on CNBC and talks about this stuff or we podcast, you always have the ability – to walk. And actually, just so you know, I mean, I was on a podcast this morning and a woman asked me for like RIAs and she's like the strategist. It was Stephanie Link, who I'm a huge fan of from Hightower. And she was asking me about semi-cycles and she was talking about, did the company's guide to, you know, and I was like, no, dude, look at the one-year chart of AMD. In October, it was trading at $75. Okay. By January 1st, it was trading at $160. And now it's back at 80. Okay, so who is that on? That's on investors who are willing to pay whatever multiple they were choosing. So how do you think about that in a way? Because a lot of times we blame investment banks. We blame analysts. We blame everybody, the company. What about investors?
2: Yeah, we do have to be kind of responsible for what we do, don't we? One of the reasons why I'm managing a family office now and not a fund is because the game just keeps getting harder and harder and harder and harder to see The dislocation moves in trillion-dollar market cap companies, single-day moves of 20%. I mean, these are staggering, staggering, instant discounting, instant dissemination of information. It's really, really hard, I think, to be a short-term investor. I take my hat off to the show you run and the comments you make because it's really – really hard to catch things on a short-term basis. And I've got the luxury now of being able to pull back and say, electric cars are a big deal, and this is the only way I know how to play it right now. And relative to my old job, I don't need to short GM and Ford and Daimler
1: against it because it's okay. I don't care. But this is a really important point you're making. Okay. I don't run a hedge fund. Okay. I worked at a fancy hedge fund 20 some years ago. I thought I was going to be Dan Benton someday. Wasn't. Now I have a non-fancy podcast here, but I enjoy breaking down the markets, but it's experience. Okay. And it's trading through different cycles and having that perspective in a way. And so to me, I think that What encapsulated so much of the markets and crypto and over the last couple or a few years in a way is a bunch of people with not a lot of experience. And listen, you know, all the power to them. You want to invest your capital and you want to buy into a meme and you want to buy into some SPAC dream or some shit coin or whatever. Have at it. Just understand that the people with experience, it's never really different. We've seen all this stuff before. In the late 90s, it was tech and telecom. In the 2000s, it was real estate and it was financial assets and this, that, whatever. This time around, it's something that was literally created in 2009, or SPACs, however you feel about them, bringing companies to public markets that maybe aren't ready for it. But again, they don't get to public markets unless there's investor demand for them. And it's not investment banks. That's the one thing I'll give the regulators a lot of credit for over the last 15 years, every crisis. To your point, this is why it's hard. There's no shortcuts anymore. So a lot of this is on investors. And so go to Google, Go to TikTok, find some influencer that you enjoy that entertains you and buy that crap that you want. Understand that you're literally going to have to be the luckiest person in the world to make money doing it over time. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) what do you make of this environment? What did you make when you were seeing these SPACs or seeing shit coins or NFTs or whatever the recently public unprofitable tech companies over the last couple of years? What was your take on that?
2: If you look back into the huge tech bubble in the late 90s or early 2000s, we took a lot of crappy companies public back then, and it wasn't the environment it is now in terms of having so many vehicles to play both sides, having all this information out there, having so many individuals in the market. You could short them, and you figured out how to make money on both sides back then. And you recognize it as a bubble when things were being valued on eyeballs or on clicks, or whenever it
1: was, and it rhymes. Well, community-adjusted EBITDA, was that
2: a metric that you used to uh, think about? We just finished watching Recrash last night. Did they have that in there? They had similar things. Yeah. They absolutely did. Impressions or whatever they were. The cash-to-click ratio.
1: But you were a hardware guy, so you were probably looking over your shoulder, and as these other analysts were coming up with all these crazy metrics to justify their valuations, you are definitely more on the Atom side of the thing,
2: right? It's a lot easier to invest in things you can touch or use. From that perspective, I mean, we use social media, we use your iPhone, but you use all the apps on your iPhone. So it wasn't hard to understand Google or Facebook or Twitter. It's harder for me to understand SaaS. And it's definitely hard for me to understand things like NFTs and crypto. And SPAC was a four-letter word. It is, again. And when you look at it from the beginning, I mean, how could it have not have been adverse selection?
1: If you can't get sold and you can't cut public in any other way, you can't do an IPO. My quick defense, because I'm close to a lot of bankers who do it, and a lot of companies actually have come public that way. There's a lot of great companies. So the timing might have been bad. The valuations might have been bad. There's a lot of great companies that have come through. That. I actually think that if you could find those right now that were 10, the whole instrument was worth a little more than that. And, and now they're like low single digits or something like that. And you sat on a handful of these companies and a lot of them are profitable. I think you'd probably make a lot of money, but no one wants to do that sort of work right now. You know, I think to your question about bubbles and irrational exuberance, We've
2: historically had rolling bubbles, yeah. if you will, within technology. Remember 3D
1: printing? 2013. We did, Listen, my show Fast Money, we've covered every one of them. Solar, Cannabis, crypto. Solar. I mean, solar. Right? Okay. Yes.
2: Yeah. And they didn't take the whole market down. The difference right now, the thing that I've learned in the last 20 years after trying to play both sides of the market for a very, very long time is the single most important thing to stocks is the direction of interest rates. Period. End of story. Right? Fed's cutting, stocks go up. Fed tightens, stocks go down. We are in an environment right now that we have not seen since the 1970s with respect to inflation. We are in an environment right now that we have not seen in any of our investment lifetimes with respect to a shooting war in Europe. When you take those two factors there, rates going up, inflation exploding because of the combination of COVID and the war. This is not a good
1: time to be investing in a fad. So let me ask you this, because I think that's a great point, and it's kind of what we call in this business a good segue, all right? So we have six stocks, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, Tesla, NVIDIA. They make 25% of the S&P 500, and they make up about 40% of the NASDAQ. Now these stocks, for the most part, Have held up very well relative to dozens and dozens and dozens of other stocks in their indices. And I find it kind of interesting because I feel like, let's put that rate thing back into the picture here. They were deemed very defensive for a while. But if the rate environment pushes us into a slower economy and a stock like Apple, that's a $2.6 trillion market cap, and analysts are expecting, let's say, EPS growth this year of 8%, sales growth about 8%. That's equivalent to the S&P as as far as earnings expected growth, not sales growth, okay? And both of those are way too high, given the environment we're in, where commodities, inflation, interest rates going higher, the fact that Europe's likely to be in a recession soon, the fact that China's still locked down and they're going to see the lowest GDP growth in 20-some years. So all the headwinds are there and valuations are still too high. These stocks haven't corrected yet. So to me, I think there's like risk lurking there. And you and I were talking last week, are we on the precipice of a Microsoft or an Apple guide down that literally puts, it's just kind of the foot on the neck of this market finally. Yeah. I don't know what the valuations on these stocks right now. What what kind of, what, what kind Microsoft? of Microsoft and Apple, are each trading about 26 times. And so if that earnings growth rate gets clipped because of a downgrade, then we're going to have a re-rating in this market. So I'm just curious your take.
2: It's a generalization, but... My sense is that people get very, very influenced by the year they start in the market in terms of what they expect from valuation in stocks. So I started in this market in 1984. 1984, tech stocks traded at a peg of 0.5. Okay, they traded at half their growth rates because nobody believed anything was sustainable. For me, it was like, I'm going to assume PC stocks trade at 10 times earnings. and I don't need multiple expansion to, to make these stocks work. When I hear a company like Apple trading at a peg of three, which is essentially what you're saying. I see downside. These companies have looking back. So Fang is not
1: exactly pristine. Netflix blew up. Facebook blew up. Didn't Amazon blow up last quarter? Amazon had a decent quarter last quarter, but it went sideways. I mean, like literally after the ramp during the pandemic. Google was up a lot on the quarter. Google was up, made a new all-time high, but interestingly enough, okay, it made a new all-time high briefly, sold off, closed on the low, And then corrected at least 10% over the next coming. So what that told me is that Passive was alive and well because they were buying the thing when it was up. But it also told you that I think a lot of savvy investors see exactly what you see as risk to the estimates for the balance of this year and the concentration. So I'm curious because by the late 90s, you were an investor and you were invested in the highest growth areas. But that also means that you had the opportunity to go the other way on them. At the time, there was the similar concentration in a handful of names. Cisco, Intel, Microsoft. But it all went the other way. So I'm not saying that the NASDAQ's going down 80%. These these companies, everything's really different. There's a lot of differences. But Jim Chanos on the pod on Friday made a really interesting point, that all those shit names that came to the market in the late 90s that were all theoretical stories, okay, they all had low single-digit billion market caps, if you will. There are dozens of stocks, 10, 20, 30 billion market caps that are not profitable, And they trade at ridiculous multiples of sales. So to me, today, as we're talking on a Monday afternoon, it's really weird. The S&P is down and the NASDAQ is up and all the stuff that's been the hardest hit is actually trading really well. We saw this in 01 and 02 all the time, if you're going to try to take too much out of that. So I'm curious about the concentration of those top five or six names, whether you think that is uh, an accident waiting to happen here in 2022. I guess I'm more worried about those $30 30 or $40 billion market cap companies that have no revenue or earnings. I mean, look at the electric car companies that have come public that are shipping tens of units. And Lucid and Rivian still have $25, $30 billion market caps, which is kind of crazy. But so my question to you is that sooner or later, and this is what we saw, even the most high-quality names in those protracted bear markets after the dot-com and after the financial crisis, they all went down ultimately. And look what's going on in the market right now. We're seeing energy turn. We're seeing materials turn. That's not good. Banks are Horrible. What are the like so I'm just curious, where do you put money to work right now if you say, all right, the major mega cap names could come in lower and there's going to be good buying opportunities at some point.
2: What's Kramer say there's always a bull market out there somewhere? And until the last couple of days, there has been a bull market in energy, there's been a bull market in commodities, there's been a bull market in industrials. So we are undoing globalization. We are in a shortage environment. We're going to pull stuff back to America. Every country is going to do that. It seems to me like we may be in for a 10-year cycle of buying Food and buying metals and buying industrial companies. It could very well be. Not my area of expertise. But again, we had 40 years of low inflation. We've had 40 years of the benefit of globalization. We've had 40 years of technology deflation. Maybe the next decade, we undo some of that stuff. I think there are
1: industries to own. It may not be this one. All right. So this is hitting the tape right now. You don't have a computer in front of you. So Twitter board accepts Elon's buyout deal okay? What does that say in this environment where we have a lot of things that have been in place in the post-World War II era that America has been the hugest beneficiary of all of globalization? And here's one thing about Elon that makes me nervous. And I don't know him. And I know you know him. And I know you had the benefit of spending time in and kind of getting this. And that head is probably a difficult head to kind of figure out. And I get it. What makes me nervous right now, people like Peter Thiel, People like Elon Musk, people like Jack Dorsey, even Andreessen. And we have this billionaire class. This is Elon Musk thumbing his nose at the elites. He's the richest fucking guy in the world buying something that he thinks is really important for news dissemination or for, for discourse or this or that, or whatever, how has he been harmed with his 83 million followers on Twitter? This is about free speech. This makes me actually really nervous because I'm going to tell you one thing. If he puts on all these MAGA assholes and Donald Trump and everything back on there, I don't think he's getting the thing that he thinks he's going to get.
2: Yeah. And you could argue, I mean, you know, so half of Tesla sales in America or in the state of California, that strikes me as a state that isn't terribly fond of Donald Trump. You put Trump back on Twitter, you hurt the Tesla brand. I categorically believe that. As we said before,
1: far be it from us to get in Elon's mind, I don't know why he's doing. But what do you think about this Jack Dorsey, this Bitcoin maximalist? And he sounds crazy. He looks like a cult leader, and sometimes he sounds like one. And you know what's really interesting is that he still presides. He's still the CEO of Square, which is one of like the largest centralized financial services company in the world. And he's saying a lot of stuff out there about what he thinks about money, the future of reserve currencies, and all this stuff. And he sounds, he looks, and sounds like a Bond villain. And all these guys do. And let me tell. Something. Elon doesn't look like Tony Stark anymore. He looks like a Bond villain, and they make me nervous. Yeah, I think these guys,
2: whatever kind of rough and tumble childhoods these and they're all men had, however geeky they were, however nerdy they were, I think they think of themselves as underdogs. I don't think they realize the outward perception of them. I think they've always been kind of humbled, not humble, but humbled, and they've got their place right now in the sun. I think tech in general. Through my experience, tech has been pretty neutral. Tech has not taken a strong moral stance. Tech is neutral. When it's 1903 and the plane takes off at Kitty Hawk, oh my gosh, we've got the advent of flight 12 years later, they're dropping bombs out of airplanes, right? That wasn't because of the invention of the airplane. That was a use of the invention of the airplane. So you're saying we should have canceled the Wright Brothers? (laughs) I'm saying that tech will continue to do its thing and how we use it is up to us. I frankly think that a lot of tech founders were just trying to do the right thing with their technology and these things take a much bigger life than they ever expected them to. And you're right. This is an industry from Gates to Zuckerberg to Musk of people that have kind of a affect where one would expect that they're not really
1: necessarily connecting on an emotional level with a lot of people. That being said, I mean, these guys are making Mark Zuckerberg look good if you think about that. Before we get out of here, you're a big thinker, and I've had the benefit of knowing you, and hopefully our listeners have really enjoyed this. I've enjoyed this conversation. Forget the industrial stuff that you said, or the energy and this and that, whatever. What are some areas in tech that you think, let's say, some young investors should be focused on? Some people who are open-minded, who actually identify with some of the things that you just said about tech being neutral. I think that is a bull case for crypto in a way. I think a lot of people think blockchains are neutral, and they could be used for Silk Road in the early stage, or they could be used to bring some African countries into the banked world or not in a centralized fashion. And to Jack's credit, I think that he is thinking a lot of good uses for crypto, but he sounds kind of creepy when he's doing it because it sounds like tear it all down, which to me, going back to 2015 and 16, that was Trumpism. And all of this stuff sounds Trumpy as fuck, if you will. And it makes me a little nervous because that was five years that I wish we could have had back here. So being optimistic, Dan Benton, what are you thinking 10 years? Where are some of the opportunities? It could be in the private markets because, hey, listen, Through Web3, there's a lot of ways to maybe access some of this stuff going forward.
2: And it is an interesting challenge because we spent a lot of time talking about how new innovation comes from new companies. And here we are trying to see what the new innovations are going to be from Google and Microsoft and Apple and Amazon. And it may not come from them. The challenge of the last bunch of years has been trying to find ways to play companies outside of that sphere, the startup companies, the little companies that have come out, they get consumed. They don't come public. I don't
1: know what happens to them. Or they come public and they have got these giant valuations with no revenues or earnings. Is that different this time though? The acqui-hire, the whole notion. I mean, just go back 10 years. I know that's crazy to say 10 years ago, Facebook, right before they went public in 2012, bought Instagram for a billion dollars. Now, again, this was a trillion-dollar market cap company five months ago, and Instagram is Facebook. Right. Is that, is that different though? Yes, absolutely. We'll never see these truly innovative companies because they're just going to get gobbled up. With today's
2: regulatory environment, DOJ and FTC, maybe we will see these companies come out. Health tech is not something I understand a lot. This is real science. Okay, technology, you know, whatever that is, right? Consumer delivery apps and stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know how to order food. I have no idea what drugs are going to work. But taking the combination of biology... And AI and data and putting it together and solving health
1: tech problems in the next decade. Now I said it 10 years ago, so maybe it takes longer. Health tech, climate tech, these are big things. These are, are big, big things. Yeah, yeah. We had this guy, Alex Redder, on OK Computer, one of our other podcasts, last week. And he was the SVP of engineering at Twitter back in 2016. He hired Prague Agarwal, who's the now CEO. He's probably got his job for a couple more weeks here. Sadly, again, he made a really great case of why Prague is the guy who should be running this company and fix this product. But he made a very passionate case why Elon, who's such a genius, and to the points of everything you just made about what he's been able to do as it relates to climate tech and then obviously space and everything like that. Why is he focused on this Twitter thing, which is such a sideshow? He could commit that capital and the time that he's going to waste on this thing and really attack an important problem.
2: Yeah. You know what? Well, I take the other side of it. It says that Tesla and SpaceX are doing really well right now. He doesn't have to spend that much time on them. Whatever, right? I mean, he works 100 hours a week. I wish he wouldn't. So climate, food tech, health tech. And the metaverse,
1: you've got teenagers. I have an 11-year-old uh, who... He's in the metaverse. Who lives in Roblox. How do you play it? Because I would have thought that Roblox, like some of these properties that have their own metaverses, and they're public. And so that means mom and pop, anybody can buy into them. Stock's absolutely gotten murdered this year. Literally since the Facebook announcement, it was trading well back then when they changed their name to meta. And so there's no valuation that people are comfortable with. Okay, but
2: Facebook has to reinvent itself to be a metaverse company, right? I mean, they're still an Instagram company.
1: (laughs) I'm not even making the case for Facebook. But Roblox is an interesting idea, whether or not they're the... Well, Microsoft paid $70 billion for Activision in January. So that's my point. That was their metaverse play, which seems kind of goofy. You know what I mean? And Activision isn't going to
2: move the dial at a company as big as Microsoft. That goes back to before. We're talking about, oh, these things get acquired. We need to find pure plays. Um, that's why NVIDIA has been such a great stock until now. How do you find the companies that benefit from these kind
1: of new giant trends? you got to do a lot of work. Yeah, and actually it's one of the reasons why we give a lot of air around here to Web3. And Packy McCormick is a guy who comes on. uh, He's a co-host of mine from Not Boring on OK Computer. And he's really laid out an optimistic vision of how most of us don't have access to VC, right? And we don't have the risk tolerance to be able to spread out bets but Web3, for the people who are actually the creators and they're in there, they earn governance, they earn – that's interesting to me. If there's some real problems that we've solved – and, you know, there's a lot of smart people in Web3 are focused on some of the very things that you're talking about, climate, food tech, you know, all that stuff. So to me, health tech, I find it really interesting listen, Dan Benton, it's been an absolute pleasure to sit down like this. I don't know why we don't have a martini or a steak in front of us because that's how we used to do this pre-pandemic. Really appreciate it. I kind of owe you that now, and we'll do it again, and I hope you come back to On The Tape. Thank you, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, man.
0: Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet.